0: Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. The ACA is the peak body representing chiropractors in Australia. Hosted by ACA president, Dr. Anthony Coxon,
1: these podcasts explore the science, art, philosophy, and politics of chiropractic, as well as reviewing the latest research and discussing how chiropractors can strive for excellence in practice.
0: Well hello everyone and welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. I'm your host Anthony Coxon. Now do you encourage maintenance care or wellness care for your patients? If you do, you're not alone. In Scandinavia, one in five of all visits to chiropractors are for maintenance care and 98% of Swedish chiropractors use this approach to some extent. I'm not certain of the statistics in Australia but I suspect they would be fairly similar. The main hypothesis behind maintenance care is that ongoing care improves the biomechanical and neuromuscular function and addresses psychosocial issues, thereby reducing the risk of relapse into pain. Many practitioners and patients have also reported that regular chiropractic care may improve their overall well-being. But does it really work? Well, a very clever group of researchers have looked into this question with a study published in the September edition of Plus One called the Nordic Maintenance Care Program Effectiveness of Chiropractic Maintenance Care versus Symptom Guided Treatment for Recurrent and Persistent Low Back Pain, a pragmatic, randomized, controlled trial. It's my pleasure today to be speaking with Andreas Eklund from Sweden, the lead author of this study. To give you a bit of background about Andreas, He's a chiropractor and a PhD. He graduated from the Anglo-European College of Chiropractic in England 2002 and was in full-time chiropractic practice up until 2012 when he enrolled in his PhD program at the Karolinska Institute. Since 2002, he's been in part-time clinically active and together with two partners, owns and manages two public-funded primary care multidisciplinary rehab units – The two clinics employ a total of 40 people, chiropractors, physiotherapists, occupational therapists and dieticians, all working as an integrated team of health professionals. Andreas earned his PhD in 2016, and the title of his thesis was Recurrent and Persistent Low Back Pain, Course and Prevention. Andreas currently works as a postdoc at Carolinster Institute, along with his clinical studies. At the moment, he also serves as the chair of the scientific committee of the Swedish Chiropractic Association and is a fellow of the Chiropractic Academy for Research Leadership, or CARL. Many of you would have heard of CARL before. and In fact, there are four Australians, Katie DeLuca, Craig Moore, Mike Swain, and Matt Fernandez, who are also involved with CARL, all doing a great work for the Aussies uh, over there. Now, his research interest mainly includes clinical pain science with an emphasis on spinal pain and clinical trials. Specific areas have been effect and cost effectiveness of chiropractic maintenance care, psychological characteristics, and clinical predictors of chiropractic patients. Hi, Andreas, and welcome to the ACA podcast. Hi, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be uh, be talking to you today. And you're on the other side of the world in Sweden, and I must start, I know we had a a little bit of a conversation uh, over email uh, leading up to the podcast, but I actually have a little bit of a a, a Swedish connection. I grew up in my 20s with um, a a few friends that were from Sweden, and I've been to Sweden um, uh, uh, not so long ago. And I remember in my 20s, it was a beautiful summer in Melbourne, and I was sitting on a balcony having a beer with some of my Swedish friends. And one of them who'd come over from Sweden was only in Australia for a short time, was contemplating his future, and I think that I just about managed to convince him to become a chiropractor. And then I found out years later that he'd become a napropath. Now, for all you Australians out there, it's not naturopath, it's actually napropath. And my first thing was disappointment that he was something else other than a chiropractor, but the second, second thought was, what on earth is a napropath? Perhaps you can explain that
1: yes certainly certainly um uh, the napropathic profession is is actually rather large in sweden it's it's much larger than the chiropractic profession and it's uh, it's actually very similar it's a manual therapy profession or um a profession concerned with manual therapy exercise interventions and um, um uh, the big difference is that the napropaths train at uh, at schools that aren't really uh, affiliated with universities and we have one school in sweden and there might be one or two more schools in the world so um, globally it's a very small profession but in sweden and and to a certain degree in Norway, it's, it's a quite large profession
0: well there you go there's another manual therapy profession if we if we didn't have enough already but uh, he seems to be doing well and loving what he does so uh that's the important thing but uh we're not here to talk about uh in my excess or my Swedish friends we're talking about uh you and your research so tell us a little bit about your background and how you became interested in research All right yes um
1: I think like most clinicians when you come out of college um you have to uh, grapple and kind of come to terms with the uncertainty of clinical practice. And to me, it was a big struggle. Um, to me, it was, there were two camps. One was to adhere to or believe in the systems or gurus or really experienced clinicians with their ideas about what was right and wrong. And uh, some were founded in some research, and but most were founded in just experience and kind of systems that were developed, as you know. Um, the other one was the other camp was to listen to the evidence, which was difficult to read. It was difficult to put into context, and often it wasn't really useful, or in fact even discouraging. So I found it re- really difficult to implement research in, in into my practice, and I was kind of somewhere in between these camps. I wanted to be evidence based, yet I I also wanted to kind of um, follow on to the traditions of previous clinicians. So. As a process of this, we we started to try to evaluate outcomes in our own practice, Um, and we found it pretty difficult. We didn't really know which research tools to use. Were we going to measure physiology, or were we going to use self-reported measures, questionnaires? And what were we supposed to do with the results? Um, Could we trust the data? Um, What what, um, was the data due to chance? Uh, Or... Even is it clinically relevant? So there were lots of questions regarding this as once we've started looking at our own patients. And I came to the very clear realization I don't have the skills to understand or do this. So somewhere around 2006 and 2007, I got involved in a practice-based research network in Stockholm. uh, It was at the time headed by uh, Professor Charlotte leboeuf Ida. She works a bit in Australia at the moment and, and where has been working most of her times in, in Paris and, and in France and, and Denmark. At that time, she, she, she was running this PBRN and uh, she invited clinicians in their spare time to take part in this, um, to get an insight into research, how research was done really. And I really fell in love with the process, the whole idea about planning, executing, analyzing data, interpreting the results, and eventually communicating the message. It kind of was like understanding that this is like opening the, some of the best presents you can imagine in the world uh, th- treading grounds that no one has seen and really getting to see knowledge when it kind of um, becomes real so I, I fell in love with that process and it's, it's step by step but it's kind of moved on and then 2012 I enrolled in my the PhD program at KI um, and, and then since then research has been you know, something that occupies my almost 24 hours of, of my um, daily routine um, so that's kind of my my, my, my back. Crown into
0: research it's really interesting you mentioned about charlotte certainly she's very well known uh, to australian chiropractors and uh we also have which you i imagine are aware of um a similar sort of practice-based research network called acorn uh that the aca or formerly the caa um um set up with the help of john adams so uh, so uh, i suppose he's probably based a lot of um how it works in Australia on that european model do, do you find that um the it's been easier to to perform research with a practice based network up and running oh absolutely
1: it's been uh, it's been i would say absolutely crucial for pretty much all the research that we've done coming out of sweden and and a lot of the stuff coming out of Scandinavia. I think this the research network we have in Sweden started somewhere 95, 98, and the first publication of the network came out 98. And since then, we have about 20 publications uh, just coming from that the work from that PBRN. And the wonderful thing is that we we've had no funding at all for the actual PBRN. It's just been a lot of voluntary work from clinicians and and um and researchers involved, but it's been extremely effective. We've done some really good clinical research. And uh, we've also you know allowed clinicians to take part of this research process uh, without actually having to become a researcher and get a, a research degree. So we've had about 40 clinicians coming and going over the years uh, and each trial that we've done has had a, like a, a project group of six to eight clinicians uh, plus a few researchers and then we would manage five to ten clinicians each so it could be some somewhere between 30 and 50 clinicians in an ongoing trial, recruiting perhaps 10 10 to 15 patients each. So we could get quite quite large numbers of patients, uh, yet we could keep uh, pretty strict um, control of what what happens in the clinical procedure. So I I think it's been been a very effective uh, form of doing research, but it is a little bit different, uh, a lot different from the ACORN, which is a much larger network, much more... um, but had much more investments and I think the, the future for the Acorn Network is just wonderful I just see amazing things come, coming out of it
0: Well yeah, well we're very excited about the, the future for Acorn that's uh, for sure Now your obviously study uh, um, it's talking about um, the recurrency of, of low back pain and in your introduction uh, to your study you talk about secondary and tertiary sta- strategies for preventing low back pain um, what do you exactly mean by that? Right,
1: so so these are public health terms that's normally used when you talk about uh prevention in 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 healthcare overall. And primary prevention um well has to do with preventing a disease from ever occurring. And primary prevention is is really hard to do when it comes to low back pain because most people get it and they get it early. So uh trying to prevent it from never occurring, well it's it would be a wonderful idea but I, I don't think it's possible. Um, secondary prevention uh, concerns individuals who have the disease or condition and they've recovered, and the idea is to prevent it from reoccurring uh, and getting the problem back. And tertiary prevention uh, concerns with patients who has had the disease and they haven't recurred, or recovered completely, so they they're in an either ongoing. Condition that's been treated and then kind of reached as far as they can get So it's the idea is to maintain the the condition at as as a low level as possible uh, Or prevent deterioration of getting even worse so When we talk about it in in this trial the secondary and tertiary prevention are the most likely forms that we're addressing with, with this procedure
0: So as with all sort of uh, clinical trials like this, there's um, criteria uh, to determine uh, who would get in and be suitable for the study. I was really interested in your inclusion criteria, especially the requirement of people being uh, what you called fast responders to care. Uh, Can you explain uh, what you mean by this and why it's important and, and what basically made up the inclusion and exclusion criteria for your study?
1: right absolutely so so the uh, this particular um, uh, criteria is, is really based on previous research where um, an, a number of studies in, in in the Nordic populations have shown that uh, by the fourth visit you you can determine whether they are going to be uh, um, have a good response at three six and twelve months down the line so there was a simple question designed asking about the subjective improvement it was a five-step scale and the uppermost level was a definite improvement and the lowermost was a a, a definitely worse so you could get either definitely worse or definitely improved and then there were the, the middle was no difference and what we found that was that the patients who described themselves as definitely improved by the fourth visit uh, it was one of the strongest predictor of treatment outcome long term so the idea here was we wanted to choose candidates that responded to care that were suitable uh, and uh, when it comes to using questionnaires, this was probably the best question to use and, and easiest to, to use in in this um, uh, framework and the nordic main- maintenance care program that that this is kind of the umbrella name for all these papers that, that have looked at maintenance care in the Nordic countries and tried to describe it. Um, what, what we found was that it's probably these patients that we naturally choose, the ones that do respond to care and, and become good patients, So it would make sense to include that in, in the inclusion procedure. Other um, inclusion criteria was that patients had to have had more than 30 days of pain during the previous years and, and previous episodes. They also had to have not had maintenance care before um, and they were had to be able to respond to, to SMS uh, on have a phone and be able to respond to, to SMS. And they were excluded for red flags or if they had a, a ongoing pregnancy. Uh, so those were the, the initial um, um, kind of a, um,
0: inclusion criteria. So after working your way through the inclusion and exclusion criteria, we have 328 people in the study. I'm assuming these were separated into the maintenance care group and the symptom-guided group. What happens next? Right, so... After the randomization
1: procedure, uh, patients were included in the study and then they were then followed for 12 months where they received a weekly SMS uh, at the end of each week asking how many days during the previous week have they had bothersome low back pain. So they would answer between zero and seven. Uh, At the end of 12 months, uh, both patients and clinicians receive um, questionnaires uh, with a, a number of uh, different uh, follow-up questions. The maintenance care protocol has been described as clinician-guided, where the clinician decides when the patient should come back for the next visit. Whereas the control group, they were asked to return when they were in need, when their symptoms would recur, and the patients were asked to be the guide of when when that would occur. Um, So these are two normal procedures that we've seen that chiropractors use for uh, people with recurrent long-term pains, either come back when you you get back your pain, or let's see if we can prevent this through regular visits. And through the 12-month period, we had to exclude nine subjects due to either dropping out, becoming pregnant, or um, having... Having uh, missing missing data so we had 319 individuals in the end for the analysis
0: so you mentioned that it was a uh, clinic guided so it's a pragmatic study the chiropractors do what they would normally do as far as patient care so they didn't have to perform a particular procedure it's just whatever was normal for them in their normal clinical surroundings um, i guess they are all are they also uh, in the cases of the maintenance care group are they deciding how often uh, their patients get or receive maintenance care or were there any sort of guidelines or restrictions that the chiropractor had to follow
1: right yeah so so what we we trying to do is base uh, the procedure on the data that we gathered from the nordic maintenance care program and we try or to mimic that procedure as closely as we could and what we found was that most chiropractors they they recommend their patients to come back at a one to three month interval so that was the that, that was the guide they had to m- use the maintenance visits in a one to three month interval if the patients would, would receive um or would get a, a relapse and need a more acute uh series of treatments then they were allowed to shorten it up and, and treat them as much as they needed and then put them back on a maintenance care schedule as soon as they thought they were um it was suitable and they were asked to fill the, the treatment content according to the clinical picture in their normal way of, of, of treating their patients and other than that there were no real restrictions we, we really wanted to capture what happens in the clinic and not create a procedure that's that's new or, or different from what they would normally do and this is i think one of the very um interesting things about this picture uh, about this trial that it, it it describes to us what actually happens and not a, a something that we invented but that's also been the main criticism of the trial People are saying, well, you know, you're doing this, but we don't know what is creating the result. We don't know what is the ingredient or what is the active component. And that's the, uh, that's the nature of, of doing pragmatic trials. There's always you ask one question and you're not able really to answer the other. And so that will be for, for future projects.
0: Sure. So your uh, what outcomes specifically were you measuring? And, and in the end, what were the results? Right. So the
1: objectives were threefold. We wanted to look at the pain trajectories. So, because we have this really rich data of what happens from a week-to-week basis, we wanted to plot the pain trajectories over time and see, did the groups differ in terms of how how it developed? We also wanted to know the total number of days with low back pain. So, if you just summarize all those days during that year, uh, what were the difference between the groups? And we wanted to know the total number of visits. so, So, to understand what were the Real costs to the patients or the um, uh, the resources needed to achieve the results, and the primary outcome was uh, the data we got from uh, the SMS, which was bo- a number of days with bothersome low back pain per week. Uh, and and as a summary, and during the study period, we sent out sixteen thousand six hundred ninety two SMSs, and only one point one percent did not respond. So those are an extremely rich data here um, with very, very little missing data, which is, is absolutely wonderful and in itself um, really, uh, really good. Um, secondary data uh, was number of treatments, sickness absence, production loss, treatment content. We also looked at activity limitations, self-rated health and, and pain intensity. Um, We also used a comprehensive screening tool at the the start where we uh, looked at the psychological profiles, um, which is something that we're using in coming studies to look at subgroups of of patients who respond or or don't respond to care. And what we found was that the patients who who received maintenance care, well, they had 12 days less with bothersome low back pain and received two more visits over the 12-month period so there was a there was a difference um the difference was not huge it's it doesn't seem like we cure people um it is effective uh, very significant results and the cost is not really that large two more visits so one group got got on average five treatments and and the maintenance care group, group got on average seven visits but there is a large variation within the Data, So we can see that there are groups of patients responding much better and groups of patients be- uh, responding much much worse um, and also groups that res- uh, consume more visits and, and groups that have less visits. So mm, there are two more papers coming out that will be published shortly where we're going to look at these subgroups and also the clinical mechanism of, of how the intervention actually affa- affects the pain trajectories coming uh, hopefully hopefully soon.
0: One of the things I really like about your study, and a lot of the research that's coming out now, is certainly that it's very practical, very usable. There's a a definite connection between the research and clinical practice, and I think this is really exciting for the the future of chiropractic. Now, this is not the first study into maintenance care. Uh, There was also one by Senna and Shireen in 2011. Tell me about this study and how this is different to your research.
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I think this study was very interesting. It came out the year before I enrolled in my PhD and uh, the major planning procedure for, for our RCT had, had been going on for a few years. Um, and it gave a lot of food for thought. And it, and it was really exciting to see that there were people doing research on this topic that weren't actually chiropractors. Um, so it's been often, it's been been referenced a lot in the chiro literature, in particular with the chiropractors who use maintenance care to some degree as a support of their procedure. And it was the really first robust clinical study uh, in, in the randomized design to look at, um, at maintenance care, uh, at least a form of maintenance care. And uh, they found that patients responded, they had more improvement in pain and less disability in the 12 months that they studied them. And they found that the group that did not receive maintenance care but had an initial treatment, they returned back to the pre-treatment level. So it's very encouraging to see that when you know there is something to this. But really, since then, there hasn't been much in terms of effectiveness evaluations. And this is the first real uh, largest-scale study that has, has looked at it. And I can see a number of problems with the SENA study in terms of chiropractic when you relate it to chiropractic practice because it's not really congruent with what we do in the clinic, at least not from what we know from the data from the Nordic countries. Um, so, so I mentioned this Nordic maintenance care program because it's it's a it's a series of papers that I, I suggest most people look at and read because it's really interesting. It really did the groundwork from for what we have done in this trial and they looked at content, frequency and indications for maintenance care. And so we know pretty well what it is we do in clinic we just didn't know whether it worked and we know from from this data that we don't do what they did in the center trial so to mention a few things well first of all they measured a different population they looked at chronic non-specific low back pain for patients who had at least consecutive pain for six months in our trial we had a, a, a little not as, as, as ill patients or not as uh, patients in as much as chronic. Uh, we had more than 30 days previous year and, and previous episodes, like I mentioned previously. Uh, they also used secondary clinics. So it was uh, outpatient clinics from rheumatology and rehabilitation department from, from a hospital, um, which is not really the patients we see mostly. Most chiros work in primary care and see patients that come off the street or or um a referred, uh, referred from primary care doctors also the clinical procedure was very different the treating clinicians were mds um they had a technique protocol that was standardized and had no real individual adaptations they used a long lever smt where they adjusted the painful side up first and then the other side and then they gave us a, a set of range of motion exercises now i'm I, to my experience, that's not really how we practice in clinical practice. There's a more more of a tailored and individual uh, style of treating where we adapt what we do to the patient's needs. Also, the frequency of care was different. They had a fixed interval in, in the beginning where they gave them 12 visits for the first month. We had a flexible period, uh, which is normally what happens. You treat the patients until they, they reach the optimum level of improvement, and then you introduce them to the maintenance care concept. Here there was no such thing. Everyone had a set number of visits, uh, et cetera, et cetera. They used three control groups. Uh, two controls one who had a, a an initial sham procedure and another who had an initial treatment procedure and then received no treatment over the uh, both both the control groups received no treatment over the treatment period which is also different from from what happens normally patients come back and receive some form of treatment even if they don't they're not on maintenance care so we were really trying to look at two clinical procedures that were used in 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 practice and not a no treatment group which which was what
0: Andreas there were three take home messages that I really got from your reading your paper the first was the idea of the fast responders and knowing that if patients are responding well after four visits these are likely to be the people who are still doing well at 3 6 and 12 months so that I found that very interesting The second thing was the idea of talking about bothersome pain rather than just low back pain and this really goes to the whole quality of life issue because we're talking about how is a person's spine affecting them going about their day to day lives. And the third thing, uh, and importantly, of course, is that maintenance care does have a positive impact on someone's health as far as at least their low back pain is concerned. It's not a massive change, but it seems to be a statistically significant change that I think most people uh, are going to appreciate. Now, you mentioned how there are subgroups within the study and how there was a great variation within those subgroups. And some of your studies that will come out Following this, we'll explore that a little bit more, so I'm very interested, and perhaps we'll get you up back on another podcast to discuss that one. But just for now, the information that we have in front of us, what does your study mean for the chiropractor out there in clinical practice? Oh, so so we could
1: pretty... specifically say that, that there is some robust evidence that suge- suggests that the use for maintenance care for recurrent and persistent low back pain is effective. Um, and if we consider the inclusion criteria in the tr- trial that you mentioned now, uh, that this is for patients with recurrent pain, with a pain profile where they've had more than 30 days previously, and that they respond well to chiropractic care, then this should be an option. And I think from a, if you were to look at this from a, like a broader Evidence-based strategy and to to incorporate um, the other uh, data on on evidence for um, for prevention of low back pain. I think exercise needs to come first. It's it's the one that has the most evidence and the most a robust data to support. So I think if patients manage their pain with exercise, I think that's the best alternative. It has so many benefits, other health benefits. So if we can get people to exercise and that will manage their pain, I think we're doing doing the best thing there. However, for some patients, exercise might not be enough. Pain might come back anyway, uh, or the effect of exercise doesn't reduce it enough. So here, MC maintenance care should be used as a complement, something that complements the exercise regime and improves it. Or in a third case, where maintenance care can be used as an alternative, where patients are either unable to perform for a number of either medical or it could be just preference reasons, or you just cannot get compliance due to lifestyle or for whatever reasons. Well, you should consider maintenance care then as an alternative, I think. So if, if we use it in that kind of way of looking at who gets it uh, in terms of what they can do themselves, then I think we're doing doing the best we can with, with the evidence that we have. Important to say is also that you need to monitor progress, because what we found, and this will be really clear in the subgroup um, papers that are coming out, is that some patients will not benefit, whereas some will benefit much more than the 13 days that we see. And uh, we need to really follow patients and see who are actually receiving benefit from this and uh, who are not. So uh, um, I I think that that would be um, my take home message as a clinician. If I were to step away from my research chat and look at this as a clinician, those would be the key concepts that I would take away from this.
0: Well, we certainly look forward to your follow-up studies and uh, learning more about uh, this topic. Uh, Andres. thank you so much for taking the time to speak with our um, podcast listeners today. I know you're very busy with your practice and with your research, uh, but we really, really do appreciate the time you've spent uh, with me today.
1: Well, thank you so much. It's been a, a, a sheer pleasure talking to you, and I, I, uh, I would love to come back if you, if if I get the chance, uh,
0: I, I think you'll be getting an email from me as soon as those papers are, are released. You can be guaranteed. Uh, well, that's it. For, <laughs> that's it for me. Thanks for listening. Uh, I hope this podcast has been helpful in your quest for excellence, and I look forward to chatting with you again on our next ACA podcast.